0: Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, the podcast that chronologically charts Swedish history from the first people who settled here to the present day. I am Chris.
1: And I'm Elsa. Uh, we are now firmly into the high Middle Ages on our journey. And in the last couple of episodes, we've talked about the various kings and queens and other notable figures involved in ruling Sweden in the second half of the 1100s. Today, we thought we'd take a bit of a break from the royals and the politics and instead look at a specific thing that happened around this time, sort of the turn of the 12th century, namely the founding of Stockholm. Hooray! Uh, Yeah, the town or the city where we live. As we'll see... It's not so much an event as it is a gradual development, but it is happening now in our timeline.
0: It is indeed, and it's so much fun to finally be able to say to you all, welcome to Stockholm, because we're actually doing the podcast from Stockholm. Uh, We've finally arrived to a point in history where our city exists, so that's great.
1: It is indeed. We're going to cover what was here before, why Stockholm became a town, and why it grew in importance, actually relatively quickly, to the point where it became the capital city and political centre of the country. But, as always, is it time to do the Swedish phrase of the week?
0: It is time. Although this week it's not really a phrase, it's more of a a concept rather than a proverb or an idiom. Um, Yeah, it's like a term or a name for something in particular. I'm not really sure what we should call it.
1: Since we're dedicating this whole episode to the city of Stockholm, we thought that instead of doing a phrase like we normally do, we'd cover the origin and meaning of the term Stockholm Syndrome. So Chris, what is Stockholm Syndrome?
0: Is that when you've moved to Stockholm and uh, you realise it's still snowing in March and the alcohol is still very expensive, something like that?
1: Maybe that's what Stockholm Syndrome is to you.
0: No, but in all seriousness, we probably shouldn't be joking because Stockholm Syndrome is really quite serious. It's a condition where a hostage forms psychological ties with their captors, sometimes displaying a sense of emotional bond or even sympathies with them. Sometimes it's used flippantly to say that a person taken hostage falls in love with or joins the cause of the hostage takers, but it's not as dramatic or as easy as that. In fact, Stockholm Syndrome is a debated condition and there's a kind of a lack of research on the topic. It's also pretty rare. Only about 5% of victims of hostage takings display any symptoms close to Stockholm Syndrome and there aren't really many hostage taking scenarios to begin with.
1: No, I guess that's maybe why it's difficult to research, because I guess it's sort of unethical to fake a hostage situation to study the consequences of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But why is it called Stockholm Syndrome then?
1: Well, it all goes back to August 1973, when an armed robber entered Kreditbanken, then one of the largest Swedish banks, on Norman toy in the city centre of Stockholm. However, the robber doesn't only intend to rob the bank, he also demands the release of a famous criminal called Clark Olofsson. In order to make his demands heard, he barricades himself in the bank vault and takes four members of the bank staff hostage. The hostage situation goes on for almost five days, and when we get to the 1970s in our chronological journey we can probably dedicate an entire episode to all that happens. It gets kind of crazy. Clark Olofsson is actually released from prison and taken to the bank and then the prime minister gets involved and the police drill a hole into the bank vault and uses tear gas and there's all sorts of things going on but In the end, the police stormed the bank vault and the hostages were freed and the police re-arrested Clark Olofsson and arrested the robber, who was a former cellmate of Olofsson's called Janne Olofsson. Anyhow, what will give rise to the term Stockholm Syndrome, which is first used by Swedish psychiatrist Nils Bejeriut shortly after the event, is that the hostages seem to, at least after a while, begin to side with the two criminals, and this is to the point that, in the end, none of the people taken hostage testified against Olofsson and Olsson in the subsequent trial. There were no doubt many complex issues at play here, and I recommend you look it up to learn more about it, but yeah. That is where Stockholm comes in in the term Stockholm syndrome.
0: Well, and also fun fact, but well yeah, fact I guess, um, is that in Swedish people don't call it Stockholm syndrome, do they?
1: No, one of the things we're most famous for, and we don't call it uh that, because in Swedish it's called normalmstoy syndrome or normans toy syndrome It's named after the square, Tory is square in Swedish, where the bank was located. Uh, but I guess that when the term then gained international recognition, it was too local, too specific, to use the name of one specific square in Stockholm. So instead it became just the whole city. But there you go, origins of the term Stockholm Syndrome. If you're interested, try and get a hold of a Swedish film from 2003 that's simply called Norman's Toy. It's a really good fictionalized version of the events.
0: What's fictional about it?
1: Well, it's fictional in that it's not a documentary. It oh, okay. a, it's a drama. It's a drama. It's actors playing yeah, yeah, the uh-huh. parts and so on, but it, it follows the narrative of what happened.
0: So he wasn't an alien or something like that, that wasn't part of the fiction.
1: No, it's (laughs) fictionalised, based on a true story, I guess, is the term that Hollywood likes to use.
0: Yeah, cool. But uh, long before Stockholm becomes a term for a psychological condition in hostages, it becomes a city. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Or more like a town, I guess, uh, at this point in history. Whilst we always draw from a wide pool of sources for each episode, uh, for this one we really owe a big thanks to the Stockholm History section of the amazing Stockholm City Library. And those of you who follow us on Twitter and Facebook might have seen we posted some pictures uh, from there a while back by the time this is released. And it's a really, really cool building. It's got a nice rotunda and one of these circular reading rooms in the middle, so it's very cool. And naturally, as it's Stockholm City Library, it has lots of material on the history of the city itself. And we've been able to get some really good books from that.
1: We really have. So shout out to them. And before we get going, we appreciate that many of our listeners are not super familiar with Swedish geography. And that's not a problem for listening to this podcast. But if you want, we recommend to just have a quick look on... Google Maps or whatever software you prefer just to familiarize yourself with where Stockholm is and what the surrounding area looks like because that's actually quite important for why it becomes the city and eventually the capital
0: yeah it really is and why all the different areas have different uses back in the past and today because it's a bit like Venice in the sense that there's lots of different bodies of water flowing around and creating all these tiny islands and things so it's quite interesting and um, that's all part of why Stockholm was founded at this exact spot for very particular reasons and as you can see when you look at a map Stockholm sits on the Baltic Sea coast or Sweden modern Sweden's eastern-facing coastline where Lake Mälaren meets the sea with a network of these narrow coastal inlets islands and peninsulas so it's It's not very uniform. It's certainly not like a Washington DC, which is all planned out like a grid. It's all higgledy-biggledy going everywhere. Even today, life in Stockholm is determined by the fact that the city's on lots of islands and peninsulas. Uh, We live on one island, for example, and every day when I go to my office, I cross a bridge and then get the tube uh, over into the main peninsula where the modern-day city is. If we want to go to the old town area of the city that we then have to cross over some other bridges and if we want to go to the south of the city it's actually easier to get a boat there so yeah yeah, it's all very different to what we're used to living in uh, London at least.
1: There was just one body of water in yeah, uh, big one. London. <laughs> yeah. Big one, yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, so the Malaren region and Svealand, the wider region in this eastern central part of the country, has been an important centre for development for the Swedish state, so to speak, uh, for centuries up to this point. We saw already in episode 24 how Sweden's first town, Sigtuna, was founded by Sweden's first proper king just further up in Lake Mälaren, And that's about 45 minutes drive away from where Stockholm is. So it's quite close in yeah. uh, both modern and geographical terms. Other early towns are also located in this area, such as Uppsala, which we also went to um, quite recently on a trip.
1: Very nice.
0: Yeah, and that's about an hour away. So um, it's all in this general nice area for modern day stuff and also the history. And all this is quite interesting to note because there wasn't really any sign of a town or even settlement here being uh, taking place before the late 1100s. And it's not really until the first decades of the 1200s that we can talk of Stockholm being a town proper.
1: If we rewind all the way back to the Stone Age, Lake Mälaren wasn't a lake at all. It was a bay in the Baltic Sea. The landmass then continuously rose over the centuries, eventually creating this archipelago-like landscape that we see today in the area where Stockholm is. Uh, In fact, the land is still rising in the 1100s. The rising landmass gives rise to another feature of Stockholm, the fact that it's very hilly here. <laughs> Lots of hills and cliffs and rocks and sharp rises and inclines. From the north to the south, a ridge runs through Stockholm, which means that it's not the smoothest, flattest ground to live and farm on.
0: Yeah, there's one uh, street near where my office is that if you want to walk across this hill, there's actually, they built a pedestrian tunnel which cuts under the hill. So if you want to skip going up the big hill, you can just walk underneath it, which is quite handy.
1: You're now touching upon something that's also a feature of Stockholm. Most of what's underneath Stockholm is gneiss, which is my favourite type of rock because it's so fun to say. Gneiss, gneiss.
0: And while Gnace might be fun to say, the fact that Stockholm is built on this particular type of rocky ground has presented some problems in the past, and even in modern day, it's presented a problem for when the underground system was being built in the 1950s. Because this is literally rock-hard ground, you couldn't dig many parts of the tunnels, but instead had to blow them up with explosives to force your way through the rocks, and it's quite a dramatic way of building your metro system. And this difficult geography means that Stockholm's largely left alone by the early Swedes. The earliest settlements can be found on Järverfältet, north of the city centre, and in Brennskirke, south of the city centre, where the ground is flatter and less rocky and easier to develop. These areas now make up part of Stockholm in general, but that only became part as Stockholm grew and spread itself wider in the 20th century after industrialization. The earliest remains of settlements that archaeologists have found in what's actually the city center of Stockholm do date back to the Bronze Age, but these weren't permanent settlements or huge villages or anything, it's just small pieces of evidence that say, okay, At least someone visited here, (laughs) but there wasn't anything like a Sigtuna. Yeah. The most likely explanation why what would become the city of Stockholm was left alone for so long is that this rising landmass was changing the situation every couple of decades or centuries. Because the landmass and sea level was still rising well into the 1100s, it also meant that new areas were often flooded and the landmass wasn't fixed, so quite understandably you're not going to rush to settle somewhere where you might see your home floating away down <laughs> into the the lake a few years later or regular flooding or anything like that it's not going to be very helpful or predictable
1: yeah i mean it's it's very much a common sense approach to the whole thing you you know maybe let's not live on what's essentially a rock that occasionally floods
0: yeah that's wise
1: Yeah, I mean, I see why people picked other spots first uh, to live. And it's not like there was a a shortage of land or Sweden was very crowded at this point in time. Uh, Instead, what kickstarts the development of Stockholm is not so much people settling to live and farm here, but instead it's the need for defense and to build fortresses because it is a fortress that becomes the first permanent structure in what develops to eventually become the city of Stockholm. We've seen in our recent episodes how Sweden developed more and more into a kingdom, a nation-state of sorts, as the Viking Age became the Middle Ages. And with a more defined state, with trade and an economy, comes the need for unified efforts to protect and defend. And around Lake Mälaren lies some of the early Swedish state's most important places in terms of trade and statehood. And so it comes as a matter of course that there is a need to protect this area from hostile outsiders. And where do outsiders come from? Well, they come from the outside.
0: Oh, I was going to say that. <laughs>
1: okay. Well... Point for you. They come from across the sea. And what lies between Merlaren and the outside? Well, this collection of islands and inlets that will become Stockholm.
0: There's evidence that indicates there was some kind of fortress around Nordström. That's one of the inlets of water around the islands in Stockholm. Um, This could be as early as the 11th century. But by the late 1100s, there's a fortress called Tre Krona and its important tower at this point. But we don't know who established this or at which specific point in time or if it was founded by a particular king or group of people. We should also state that when we now talk about this fortress and the establishment of a town in this period, we're talking about the island called Stadsholmen. In modern-day Stockholm, the city centre has moved a bit north onto the mainland peninsula called Norrmalm, but Stadsholmen is where the historical Old Town is today. It's also where the Royal Palace is and the Parliament buildings on a tiny neighbouring little island between Norrmalm and Stadsholmen called Helge Ansholmen. If you ever visit Stockholm, you should definitely go for a walk around Stadsholmen, which is uh, nowadays simply referred to as Gamla Stan, or the old town, as it now encompasses the, the whole mini island. It's yeah. just the town. So I, I didn't even know it was called uh, Stadsholmen.
1: I bet a lot of Swedes don't know that the actual island is called Stadsholmen, because we usually just refer to it as old town.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's taken me um, six months to learn that myself. Um, <laughs> Stan retains much of the old medieval street network and centuries-old houses, a bit like the main road in Sigtuna is exactly from a thousand years ago. It hasn't changed much. Unfortunately, there's no building preserved that's quite as old as the period we're talking about today. But one building, particularly a building at 27 Bagginsgarten, or Bagens Street, is Stockholm's oldest residential building, dating back to 1336. So in a few hundred years, it will be a thousand years old.
1: Yeah. So by the second half of the 1100s, we know we've got a fortress here. So that, that's at least a start to make a city. Uh, There are also indications that King Knut, who we talked about last week, established a seat of royal power here. Still, that might not be enough to say that there was a whole town here by his reign. It could be that the area around the fortress was nothing more than a spot to overnight for travellers and a place for ships to reload, but nothing more than that.
0: Knut's Motel and uh, Garden Market.
1: Maybe. Maybe it was nothing more than that. To understand how we go from fortress to town, we must look at the other important reason why Stockholm becomes Stockholm, and that is trade.
0: Yes, because being located on the border between Lake Melren and the Baltic Sea doesn't just make Stockholm an important place for defence, but it also makes an important place for trade. After all, it's only a few kilometres away from Birka, which was located in this region exactly for this reason. Yeah. If we're going to talk about trade, we need to introduce some people who, for centuries to come, will be crucial to development of Stockholm, and that's the Germans.
1: Ah, hallo, guten Tag, die Deutschen. Herzlich willkommen im Schweden.
0: Yes, as they, uh, the Swedes would have probably said back then. You should go back in time and use your German skills to welcome these traders.
1: Well, herzlich willkommen for any German-speaking listeners as well. Ja,
0: natürlich. Sprechen Sie Podcast?
1: Machen wir ja die die ganze Podcast auf Deutsch.
0: Ja, natürlich.
1: I'm going to make an entire episode where I speak only Spanish and German and so then Chris can't uh, be part of the podcast. I'll just kidnap the podcast, make an entire episode in German and Spanish.
0: Ich kann Deutsche gesprochen. Das deutsche Geschichte. (laughs) But yes, we really should say welcome to the Germans because German traders are going to play a big role in why Stockholm grows as a city both now and in the future. Basically, German traders really like the location of Stockholm because it means they can just sail their ships up the Baltic Sea and then sell their goods to the Swedes here, who in turn take the goods onwards and sell them in other places around Sweden. So this way, the German traders don't have to go through the faff of sailing up into Lake Mälaren or traveling up the Baltic Sea to the north or going inland to Sweden to get their goods sold. And the other way round, Swedes could take their goods to Stockholm and instead of going down to Europe themselves, sell them to the German traders who in turn would take them onwards on larger ships down to the continent. In essence, Stockholm was the perfect spot for a trade exchange, and it benefited both Sweden and the German merchants. This wasn't just a passing trend either. German influence will continue to be important in Stockholm throughout the Middle Ages, especially as we see the rise of the Hanseatic League.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, the Germans are going to be with us for a long time, and that is so nice. German actually had quite a big influence, uh, if you look at this, development of the Swedish language uh, as well, which we might talk more about uh, at some point. But for now, we have the two ingredients that explain why a town is founded here and why it grows. Fortification and trade. And both of those exist because of the location and the waterway being so important. It seems that Stockholm grows from pretty much nothing or just a fortress and maybe Knut's motel that Chris mentioned earlier to a full-blown town actually in less than a century, around the end of the 1100s and early 1200s. And whilst we can't point to one specific year or event that makes this happen, there are a few important points on the way. One of them is the fact that Sigtuna burns down in 1187, which we mentioned last week. Different sources give different accounts of what happened, but it seems the town was attacked and set ablaze. There is a debate over who attacked it, some say Estonian or Karelian raiders, but no archaeological evidence of the attack has been found and the written accounts are from much later and less reliable either way it's clear that something happens to destroy much of Sigtuna which was then the oldest and perhaps the most important town in the country this means that the time is right for a shift towards something new and it's easy to see how the popular trade point that is Stockholm rises as a popular contender And since there's already fortifications here, that makes it easier to defend. Sweden is also in a process of expanding eastwards at this point in time. Spoiler alert, but we will soon see the first Swedish incorporation of what is today Finland. So it made sense to have a town that faced east, the way Stockholm does, rise and grow in importance because the whole move was sort of towards the East.
0: Yes, and uh, another important date in the early history of Stockholm is 12.30, or around that sort of time, because that's when we get the first mention of Stockholm in a written source. Uh, I love this because I know it will mean that one of our listeners who follows us on Twitter will get to shout the infamous Snorri Sturluson <laughs> and annoy their partner, because yes, the town gets a mention in the Heinz Kringler by Snorri Sturluson.
1: Go Snorri, and I hope you got to annoy your partner uh, there, I was thinking of you as I wrote this bit of the script. Uh, uh, yay! We get to mention Snorri Strulesson. uh, That'll be fun. In fact, what he describes in the 1230s is probably more of an account from 10 or so years earlier, because he actually visits Stockholm in 1219. So that gives us a bit of evidence that by 1219 there is at least more of a town here than just a fortress. We have to wait another couple of decades, actually until 1252, before we get the earliest preserved source that names the town as Stockholm. That's a letter of protection for a place called Fugde near Strängnäs, it's written by B.A.O. and he writes that he is writing from Stockholm, so that's how we get that first mention. However, the reason that it's not until 1252 that we have a preserved source that mentions Stockholm might be because a lot of records from early Stockholm was most likely destroyed in several large fires that ravaged the city in the 1400s. In 1419, the courthouse that had had all the records, that burnt down, so we don't know what might have gotten lost there.
0: Ah, so annoying. Uh,
1: It's a bit like the library in Alexandria, you know, you have a feeling that just everything vanished there.
0: Yeah, oh well, sad times. (laughs) So whilst the records aren't nearly as complete as we'd like them to be, there are some important dates in the life of early Stockholm that we thought it'd be good just to mention here, even if it means we do have to keep jumping forward slightly in our chronology. Because it's in 1269 that King Valdemar hosts the first royal court in Stockholm. The monarchy wasn't based just at one specific place at this point and instead the court moved around from town to town and we know that in 1269 a royal court is held here. In 1281 the town seal, uh, old-fashioned kind of stamp and not the animal that likes to live in uh, lakes and go arp, arp, They're arp. There probably
1: were. I mean, there are seals here now, so maybe they... But they, they didn't ha-
0: have a town seal that was sort oh. of paraded around.
1: <laughs> oh, we need to have a town seal now. Yeah. I'm going to write to the council and say that we, we need a town seal.
0: Yeah, that would be amazing.
1: But, but tell me more about the first town seal that unfortunately was a boring stamp and not an animal
0: Yeah, so uh, it's first mentioned in 1281, and that's it. Yeah, that is all we have. But there's a real wow moment in uh, 1289, a few years later, as Stockholm is described as Sweden's most populous city. And that's really quite a rocket-like trajectory of growth for the city. There's next to nothing here until the late 1100s, and then by 1289, maybe a century or so later, it's described as the most populous city or town in the country. That's quite something for good old Stockholm.
1: Definitely, it really is. In the late 1200s, Stockholm also continues to grow in royal importance. It's increasingly mentioned as a royal residence, and in 1292, the first king... Magnus II was buried here. Magnus II, or Magnus Lådulos, as he's known in Swedish, will be a very important figure for cementing Stockholm as the main city in the country. And so will his dad, the Earl Birger Jarl. Uh, But I don't want to go into too much detail because I know we will talk a lot about earl bia Yall and his son and everything they got up to in a couple of episodes time
0: yes it's uh, tentatively going to be episode 36 so in about three episodes time that's already scheduled to be the big burger Yall episode
1: Ooh, i'm already looking forward to it
0: i like saying burger yarl because it's like burger king
1: yeah <laughs> more on burger Yall and everything he got up to in a few episodes time It is difficult to say when Stockholm becomes the capital of Sweden as such, because, like we already mentioned, the seat of power, being the royals and their court, was mobile in a way that it isn't today. Although we see how by the late 1200s, Stockholm is becoming increasingly important, both as the main seat of royal power, but also as the town where most people live and where a lot of the foreign trade takes place. Uh, without applying any hard and fast rules, I think it's fair to say that those things combine makes Stockholm the main city in Sweden from the late 1200s and onwards. And then we could say that it gains the title of capital as that becomes more of a thing in later centuries, when the seat of power becomes more fixed to one place.
0: Yeah, so now we know a bit about the development. What was life like in early Stockholm? In the late 1970s, there was actually plenty of archaeological digs in Stockholm where the uh, Parliament building sits since that was being rebuilt then. And based on what was found then, we know a little bit more about what medieval Stockholmers would have looked like and what their lives might have been like. Based on a study of 1,300 skeletons, we can say that the average height for men was 171 centimetres, or about 5 foot nine, five foot ten, Uh, and for women about 157. That's quite short, especially for women.
1: That is definitely a lot shorter than today. Uh, You could tell that we hadn't grown into the role of being tall, especially women, uh, that Swedes are known for today. I'm 166 centimetres tall and I'm not very tall for being Swedish. Plenty of women here are 170 centimeters tall or or above that
0: well you probably just get to eat and live better than your historical sisters did so that probably helps um
1: <laughs> definitely and i'm not it's great to be 157 uh, 157 centimeters tall i must say that because i happen to know that it is the exact height of a good friend of mine who might listen to this podcast so for fear of retribution from that one listener it is great to be 157 centimeters and the medieval stockholmers had it just right
0: the average life expectancy for women was just 29 years so also has exactly zero years left
1: (laughs) well okay (laughs) I hadn't thought of that, actually, when I read it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well. Well, see you never. Um, And for men, it was 34, so I don't have very long left either. But you Um, get
1: five extra years without me to enjoy bachelorhood.
0: Yep. Five more years of the podcast alone. But these figures are skewed because so many died as children and being born. So uh, if we take away those who died before they turned 15, the average life expectancy was a much more healthy... 45 for men and 42 for women.
1: Which is also, I mean, not old especially when you compare it with today in 2020 the life expectancy for women in sweden was 84 whereas for men it was 80 so we live almost twice as long today as the medieval stockholmers did that's that's quite an extraordinary thought
0: well exactly double uh, for the women and uh it really is pretty extraordinary but also from these archaeological studies we know that they're were those in early Stockholm who did live to be as old as 70 or even 80. It wasn't the norm, but some people did make it that far.
1: We've already mentioned that German merchants played an important role. In fact, Germans would make up a substantial part of early Stockholm's population, especially the wealthier and the influential segment of society. Many came from Lübeck or Danzig, which is today actually in Poland and is known as Gdansk.
0: I've been to Gdansk. Very nice place. Nice old, late medieval crane on the sort of dockyard canal place. I recommend going there.
1: Cool. Lübeck is also really nice. I've had lunch there once.
0: Lunch in Lübeck. That could be a podcast. (laughs)
1: Maybe, but uh, yeah, so nice if they stayed, also nice if they came and settled in Stockholm. Uh, Some came from even further southwest, from the German region called Westphalia. Uh, The German population was in fact so influential that during a period in the 1300s, there was a rule that said that half of the councillors in the city council must be German.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, that's very impressive. Um, German city council. I wonder was there a German mayor. Did they have a mayor back then?
1: There were. Wa- there were. So when I looked at old lists of mayors, there were some definite German-sounding names. So I would suspect so.
0: Looking forward to that uh, when we get to it in the podcast. So second to the Germans, another important influence on early Stockholm was immigration from Finland. We mentioned how Sweden was beginning to expand eastwards at the same time as Stockholm was growing, and so it came as a natural consequence that people from these newer eastern parts of the kingdom, so what is nowadays Finland, settled in the rapidly expanding main city of the country. This, of course, included people who spoke Swedish as their first language and those who spoke Finnish. An interesting visual representation of the location of Stockholm and the connection to Finland is that if you look at a map and see where Stockholm is and you draw a line diagonally across where the water is narrowest, you end up in Turku, Finland's oldest city. This connection between Stockholm and Turku or Orbu, as it's known in Swedish, will be vital for the development of the Swedish kingdom later on in history.
1: Yeah, and as whilst we're naming other cities that are also nice, uh, Orbu or Turko in English and Finnish, very nice city. Also, not far from Elbu lives the Moomins. Officially. You want. Officially, they live a little bit north of Turko, if you want to go and say hi to them.
0: There's Moomin world that you've been to.
1: Shh! Don't break the illusion.
0: It's Moomin World. Yeah. That's where they live. Exactly. Yeah. Uh,
1: But much more on the developing connections with Finland in a separate episode. Another thing that's interesting when we look at early Stockholm is how organically it grew. There was no established town planning or rules drawn up for how the streets and houses should be built. Instead, it seemed like Stockholm developed by adapting to the natural topography of the place. Uh, the city was, as we said, on this one island, Stadsholmen, but there were little, like, pre-cities, suburban areas uh, with farms and so on, that developed on land just north and just south of Stadsholmen on what is today Normalm and Södermalm. And, ooh, actually, speaking of farms, in medieval Stockholm, as was the case pretty much everywhere, It was common that people kept livestock where they lived, even in the city, so it wouldn't be strange to see a couple of pigs walking down the street in the city centre.
0: Nice and uh, smelly. (laughs) Yeah. Another aspect of early Stockholm was that it was founded and grew in an area that had already strongly established territorial units. The counties of Sömland and Uppland, which Stockholm straddles the borders of, were already pre-existing territorial units in medieval Sweden, so Stockholm was just plonked in the middle of the two. Stockholm was most likely governed as part of Upland during the Middle Ages, and it would only be much later that it became its own county and sort of taken out of this system itself. Other territorial structures to govern the country, like Socken and Herod, which we talked a bit about in episode 29, were also established in Stockholm. So Stockholm was incorporated in these already existing structures, rather than being the place from which these grew. For example, when it came to church matters, which, as we know, were an important part of medieval society, Uppsala, a place only an hour north of Stockholm in the same county of Uppland, had already established itself as the main seat of religious power, and Stockholm would never rival Uppsala for that. In fact, to this day, the seat of the Swedish Archbishop, along with the administration of the Church of Sweden, is in Uppsala and not in Stockholm. So just like the Archbishop of Canterbury is in Canterbury and not London.
1: Yeah. While Stockholm sort of emerged into pre-existing societal structures, it sort of found its place in structures that already existed rather than being the place that created them, the city was also laid on top of them, sort of, or or, or seen as separate. From very early on in the city's history, there was a desire to keep administration of Stockholm slightly separate from the rest of the country. That was for trade purposes, for tax purposes, and for royal purposes, not the least. Pretty much from the start, the monarchy was keen to ensure that they had special powers in Stockholm, and that only grew as the city became more settled as the home of the royal seat of power. From the 1290s, Stockholm had its own town law, with a separate legal system, court and council from that of the surrounding areas. Uh, This wasn't unique for Stockholm as such. The uh, Bjerkeritten, or Bjarke laws in English, was used to govern life at a trading point or in a city across Scandinavia in the early part of the Middle Ages, and so this applied to Stockholm as well. We don't know much about the early laws of Stockholm or the early town council, But we know that laws didn't regulate as much as our legal codes do today, and the town council didn't have as many areas of responsibility as its modern equivalent has. Education and healthcare, for example, were matters that the church took care of. Well, took care of to the extent that anyone took care of them.
0: Yeah, nobody was in charge of snow plows or bin collection like they are today.
1: No, one perk of being a counsellor in uh, the Middle Ages is that you don't have to bother with uh, who's going to pay for the snow plow.
0: But instead, what they were in charge of was internal order and security, regulation of craftsmen and trade in the city, and defence against external enemies. The council funded these things, much like their modern-day equivalent, by levying taxes and taking the money from fines handed out to people who did something wrong.
1: It's interesting to see how some things change but also stay the same. It's this, the tax system is, is essentially the same today as it was in the 1200s. Now, before we wrap up, I thought we could just briefly say something about the name itself, the name Stockholm. First of all, there is no agreement on how the name came about or what it actually means, not among historians or researchers or anyone really, but there are some random ideas that I thought we could look at. The name Stockholm is two Swedish words put together, Stock and Holm. Stock means log, as in a wooden log, and Holm is a small island, so translated to English... Stockholm would be Log Island.
0: It sounds like a really bad uh, internet game.
1: <gasps> or like a ride at Disneyland.
0: Oh, Log Island, yeah, maybe.
1: The island part of the name, most people agree, would refer to Stadsholmen, the island where the town was founded and that remains the old town centre. It's the stock, the wood log part, where uh, there have been some different theories. One theory is that the stock refers to a pole that was put here to mark a frontier or mark the location of a marketplace. Or some say that the stock or stockar refer to wood logs or poles being put in the water as a defense. Another theory is that Stockholm, over time, that's what the name became, but actually, originally, it was Stubholmen. And Stube that is the stump of a tree, would refer to all the trees that were cut down to make room for fortifications and houses here.
0: And along the same lines is the idea that Stockholm was originally called Stocksundsholmen, so Wood Log Straits Island, <laughs> and, and then the Sund was dropped. That idea just doesn't really make much sense. Um, what would wood log, Straits, Island even be? That's just a lot of words put together.
1: Yeah, true. Uh, along the same not very plausible sounding line is the idea that stock comes from the verb stockasse, which translates to English as the act of no longer floating or or to be blocked. The name Stockholm would then refer to that this was the island where water narrowed and, by extension, stopped floating as freely. Or maybe it was when you drive logs on the water, this would be the island where they got blocked, stuck, at a say.
0: All of these seem pretty weird um, and far-fetched. We'll just have to stick to the one thing that most people do agree on and that's that we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or go with the Germans who lived and traded here who simply called the place Holm or Holmia in Latin. So we don't have to bother with the confusing stock bit.
1: Yeah, as much easier. So Stockholm is here. 33 episodes in and our capital city is now joining us on our journey. That, that feels very nice. And not just the capital city, but also the place where a flat pack history of Sweden is made. It's been our home for roughly six months now. Uh, how do you feel about modern-day Stockholm, Chris? It's nice. Yeah? Yeah. The one thing it lacks is a town seal.
0: It does, but we can get on that. I know where the city council building is, so maybe I can like drop off a, an official petition at some point.
1: Yeah, but in spite of the lack of uh, a town seal, uh, a nice little city, not not very big by international standards, and yeah, like we've illustrated in this episode, a bit odd looking with all the islands and peninsulas and waterways.
0: Yeah, but definitely put it on your list for post-corona travel if you haven't been here before.
1: definitely. But before we go, we have a load of new reviews to share with you, plus an email from a listener. So shall we start with the five-star reviews?
0: Sure, why not? Last episode was quite a long episode, over an hour long, so we thought we'd save more than one review uh, for this episode. So let's start with Great Balance of Swedish History and Lighthearted Banter. Chris and Orsa present a great balance of historical fact and light-hearted banter. Their episodes are well-researched, and their genuine interest in the subject is only surpassed by their enthusiasm in presenting it. Highly recommended. From Rod Knee.
1: Yeah, oh, thank you so much. for så
0: How about you read the next one?
1: Yeah, very well-researched podcast with a nice balance between political history and big names, and focus on how society worked back in the days. I love Sweden and history, so I love that this podcast fills that sweet spot between these topics. Thanks, Elsa and Chris. That's from MMVDV, or possibly MvDV, uh, also via Apple Podcasts, from the Netherlands.
0: Yeah, thank you, Netherlands.
1: wel, Netherlands.
0: And now back to Sweden, we have Great Podcast. Thank you for a great podcast. I'm halfway through i think i found you through an old school free newspaper in stockholm and i think there was an article about you there i've been an avid podcast listener for 10 years and never before found a new pod outside the digital space great story keep it up and enjoy stockholm best patrick well thank you patrick and yes that would have been the our article in Mitte Leadinger, which was also in uh, mit of ostermalm as well
1: and these are all yeah local newspapers that are f- free i think you get them once a week here in the stockholm area so that's great patrick that you found us via that little article thank you so much for all those lovely reviews they really mean so much to us
0: yeah thank you for taking the time to write them now on to the email conversation that we've had with a listener recently or by the time this is released about a month or so ago And this is when Gareth in South Australia got in touch to tell us the story of his grandfather, who was a sailor from Åland, a set of islands in Finland that are actually Swedish-speaking because they're exactly halfway between uh, Stockholm, really, and Finland. This said grandfather made it on one long trip from Åland all the way to Australia on their very first voyage on a ship, but uh, decided to jump ship and never return to Orland.
1: That's quite dramatic. Uh, th- this was in the early 1900s, and yeah, coming from Orland, which is a beautiful corner of the world, by the way, going all the way to Australia, and then just deciding, no, I'm staying here. That that's quite dramatic. My father was a sailor his whole life, or uh, well, still is a sailor, but uh, now retired. He never felt like there was one place that was so nice that he wanted to stay there forever. He always returned to the south coast of Sweden eventually, which I suppose I should be grateful for, that he didn't do what uh, Gareth's grandfather did and uh, jump ship in Australia at one point.
0: But you could have been living in Australia instead.
1: That is true. That would have been great too. I've never been to Australia.
0: I have. You should go. We should go. It's warm. It's uh... <laughs> warm.
1: I'm sure it's lovely. I've, I've had the pleasure of working and studying with uh, wonderful people from Australia.
0: But yes, uh, Gareth is also a bit of a regular on our Facebook page now, uh, told us that his grandfather's voyage uh, at 18 years old was so bad that the ship ended up being three months late. Imagine turning up something three months late.
1: I mean, I'm annoyed when the tube is three minutes late. So, yeah, being three months late on your arrival. I I mean, I understand why uh, his grandfather was uh, perhaps uh, spooked isn't the right word, but yeah, unwilling to go back on a ship again and just uh, stayed in lovely, sunny Southern Australia.
0: Yeah, um, and one final thing from Gareth was that he mentioned that there's quite a few old port towns in South Australia that have links to Orland and the grain trade. There's a place called Port Germain, which has a number of streets named after ships from Orland, and Port Victoria has a maritime museum with some photos and displays of the old wind jammers, this type of ship, and stories of their trips all the way from Orland to Australia, so... That will definitely be on our list for whenever we go to Australia.
1: For sure. And and if you, we have listeners that happen to be in that part of the world, do go and check it out and tell us what it's like. And with regards to Åland, that's going to come up very soon in our history now, because we are getting to that point where the Swedish kingdom starts to seep over the Baltic Sea and uh, the Åland Islands and into what is today southwestern Finland.
0: But that's more to come in future episodes.
1: Indeed. And thanks again, Gareth. Thanks to all of you who write in. We love to hear from you, whether via email or on social media. Uh, but that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Flatpack Sweden or find us on Facebook. Just search A Flatpack History of Sweden.
0: So it's bye from us. Yeah. Bye-bye. Hey, door. It's very nice.
1: (laughs) It's very Gnace. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I also can't record because she's laughing too much.
1: <laughs> I didn't even mean for that to be a joke.
0: Yeah. Well, I made it a joke.
1: It's very Gnace. <laughs>
0: it's very Gnace.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm crying now because Gnace is so much fun. Uh, can, you, can you keep going, please, Chris, while I collect myself?